0: Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Leadership Student Podcast with M.K. Palmore. We are all lifelong learners, and nowhere is this more relevant than in the practice of leadership. Our goal is continual learning and improvement. Let's get after it. Knowledge is power, now more than ever.
1: this is mk palmore welcome back to the leadership student podcast today in a virtual studio i have grayson james uh, who is a former ceo uh, and current author uh, author of a book called full Con- full contact performance the international art of organizational collaboration uh, grayson is a get former ceo uh, certainly someone who's practiced in the discipline of leadership So we want to, as we do here on the Leadership Student Podcast, dive right into the subject of leadership, hear a little bit about uh, Grayson's story, but really get into the nuts and bolts of uh, how he operates in the leadership realm and discipline and the art of leadership and hear a little bit about his story. So Grayson, welcome to the virtual studio. Glad to have you here. Thanks,
2: MK. Good to be with you.
1: Awesome. So let me give the the, the title of that book again, because I screwed it up, Full Contact Performance, the internal art of organizational collaboration. Uh, interesting title. Let's dive right in. How'd you pick the title and the subject matter?
2: Well, uh, the the title give you a little bit of background. Um, for the past forty years or so, I have been studying, and uh, for most of that time, also teaching the martial art of Aikido. And uh, in Aikido, Aikido is not considered a full contact martial art. In the classical sense, what, full contact is a term in martial arts that refers to a type of sparring or, or a competition or training where you really go at it. You don't pull your punches. You, your strikes are true and strong, and you usually have protective gear on. And But even if, even if you're wearing protective gear, when you're training with full contact, you can get hurt, but you also learn a lot that's where you really learn a lot about yourself and your preparedness, the assumptions you're making about yourself, the assumptions you may be making about your opponent, your circumstantial awareness, your weak spots, your strengths. So it's a really fertile place for learning a lot. And when I think of good uh, leadership and collaboration, similar images come to mind people are straight with each other, they don't pull back. I'm not saying they go after each other and attack each other, but they uh, they find a way to learn how to uh, be honest with each other and respectful at the same time and stay engaged. So that is the full contact part of the story. The internal art part of the story, uh, the internal art of organizational collaboration really um, recognizes that When we're working with other people in whatever context it is, whether uh, you're you're my leader, I'm your leader, whatever it might be, or we're colleagues working on a project together or we we are thrust together because we have to, to get something important done in the organization. The real power, the real game lies in how am I bringing myself to this encounter? And that's a little bit counterintuitive because we often, especially with collaboration, we often assume that, well, it's all about other people. If you're collaborating, you have to focus on those other people out there. And you do, but not exclusively. And in fact, the real leverage for making change and for transforming your collaborative performance and your leadership performance is what you're doing with yourself. How are you, what are you cultivating in yourself? What are your practices? What are the assumptions you're operating on right now? What's the context that you are part of and that you're helping to either reinforce or try to change? So that is the nod to the internal art. And I really consider leadership to be an in internal
1: art. So Grayson, you're already singing my tune uh, as it will. So from the title to the theory that you just espoused. these are all things that um, uh, historically I have believed are part of the discipline of leadership. Uh, I always uh, liken uh, my reference to this as I call leadership a contact sport. In other words, uh, you have to understand that there is some um, there's some uh, you know level of, of of grit that's involved in this when you're having honest conversations with people, a willingness to be open vulnerable. Uh, You know, it's really challenging, I think, to approach it in that regard. So to hear you uh, talk about it the way that you just did really resonates with me and I think will resonate with others. Um, You're touching on something that's important, a theme that I've brought up a couple of times in past conversations, and that is the idea of sort of knowing yourself and that self-reflective nature that you have to bring into your uh, encounters with others. Pull the thread back on that for me a little bit, um, how you view it. How folks get to the point where they have that level of self-realization and kind of know who they are when they show up in uh, in these engagements.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, let me start by telling a, a little story uh, about how I, I really started to uh, orient myself in this direction. I was um, I've led a lot of workshops uh, with different companies and different cultures and countries around the world, and uh, one of the things that I've often do when I first start working with a group of leaders in these workshops, or just in, uh, even if I'm not in workshops, if I'm just coaching a group, I ask them what works, what works for instance in organizational collaboration and leadership collaboration. And what got my attention first was that wherever I went in whatever culture I was working in, most of the answers are really the same and they're all good answers well, you need to be present, you need to be respectful, you need to um, listen well, you need to speak clearly, you need to have empathy, you know, all of the things that, that pretty much everyone would agree are important for good leadership collaboration. And then the uh, from there, we and I write those down, um, from there, we go to examining very, very closely a particular conversation that did not go well for each of the participants or an imagined conversation that they might have with somebody that isn't that they're having trouble with in the relationship so either one it works and and i i really guide them to look closely at that and to talk about what is their conversational strategy what's the goal what's the conversational strategy how would they approach it what would they say and then what would happen and what shows up there when people these are accomplished seasoned leaders when they really look closely at their most challenging conversations what they realize is that even though they just got done listing all of the things that work they discover that they're not actually doing all those things that work they thought they were before they they stepped back and we really look closely at what was going on and then they realize oh my god I I've always thought that I was really good at this, like a great listener or really encouraged dissenting views and respected differences. And now I realize that the um, you know, the even from the conversational strategy I design to the way I actually open the conversation and engage with it is very often very different than I thought it was. So people think they're doing one thing when they're actually doing another or they're not at all aware of what they actually are doing. So it made me realize that awareness is really key. And if you don't have awareness about what you're doing and how you're doing it, including the internal aspects of what you're doing, how am I making sense of this relationship, of this conversation? What are my background stories about this person? And how is that playing out? What's going on in my body? How is my nervous system showing up right now? All of these are really central factors to how I'm going to be performing. But they're usually invisible to me because they're all habitual. So like with any habit, if we want to change it, we first have to become aware of what we're doing. And then we need to try new things.
1: What are some strategies that um, aspiring leaders and folks can use to? level up that awareness and really understand what it looks like on the other side of these conversations when they step into them? What are some strategies folks can do to improve their, um, their own understanding of how they present themselves? To yeah, folks?
2: well, it's, uh, let me start by saying it's, it's pretty hard usually to do it all by yourself. Just like it's hard for us to teach ourselves piano without anybody else there or, you know, anything else that involves a uh, real level of skill. But with your colleagues, or with a good coach or instructor, you can you can actually do that a lot more easily. What people can do is uh, start to ask for feedback. Tell your colleagues, what is it that you're, what are you interested in? And why would you want their feedback? Give them a little context and say, hey, look at MK, I'm I'm working on myself as a leader here, or I, I want to become a, a better collaborative leader. And I know that I'm probably doing things that I'm not aware of that are probably evident to everybody else on the team except me. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to share what you observe. What do you see me doing that you think works? What do you think I'm doing that may not be working so well? I think that's one step. Another is to to really learn about, uh, what we're doing with our nervous system, because the shape of our nervous system has a lot to do with what we can tolerate, and therefore where we're able to go in our conversations. So by that I mean, what I see whenever conversations get really tough, people's nervous system will determine where they what happens next. So if my nervous system is tightly wound and I feel uh, anxious or stressed in this conversation, I'm probably not going to be as receptive to your input or to you challenging my thinking. It's going to be harder for me to tolerate than if I'm in a, a, a more chilled out, comfortable space. And again, this is something we don't usually think about. Our nervous systems just do what they do. And if we're having a good day, we're good. If we're not, then you know all bets are off. So kind of getting curious about yourself is, I think, you know, it sounds very general. I'd like to be more specific, but.
1: Uh... No, I actually, I, I love it. Um, so what you're talking about is this um, autonomic, I think, is the term for the response that, that we have biologically to uncomfortable situations, right? Um, and that can be stress-filled situations. And for those of us uh, you know, folks like myself, who, who you know, military and law enforcement background, I've been in situations where I sort of, I've seen what it means for me to be in the midst of that. Not everyone has had an opportunity to see themselves in the midst of something that might be considered highly stressful. Um, and it's interesting, when you do, like when you do get the opportunity to see and then take note of what your response was like in a situation. And I think um, correct me if I'm wrong. I uh, interested to hear your thoughts on this. It's really different for every person. Like you, d- you don't know what your autonomic response is going to be until you're in the midst of that situation, and then you start to get an inclination as to, okay, this is kind of how I'm built. And when you know, you can start either planning uh, or guarding against it, or you can sort of, you know, I assume. Uh, from your perspective, do exercises and things that you can do to sort of get that kind of thing under control.
2: Yeah, I really like where you're going with this, MK. So you've had that experience, so you know yourself in that way, and that carries with you wh- wherever you go and whatever you do. So you'll feel certain things, and you and you probably say to yourself, "Oh yeah, I feel this happening right now. This is going on my heart rate, my breath, the hairs on the back yeah. of my neck, whatever it might be for you." And you know then that that's a cue you can work with yourself. But for people who don't have that, who have never experienced that, or who haven't um, brought it to their awareness, their conscious awareness, it's, a, it's more difficult because it's an abstract concept still until you experience it. But if you can, um, for instance, in a tough conversation, if somebody who's listening to this can uh, maybe take a moment Uh, and just check in with themselves and notice what's going on in the body. I I like to reference the body a lot because it actually holds the key to our performance in a lot of respects. And it's one of the most immediate and direct ways we can get feedback about how we're doing in a conversation or in any kind of a a stressful situation. And by, for instance, deliberately slowing my breath I can actually immediately, very quickly start to change the shape of my autonomic nervous system and activate the relaxation response, and which is usually going, um, the other side of this, this, the the, the sympathetic side of the nervous system is usually what's triggered when we're under pressure and feeling anxious. And the other side, the, uh, the parasympathetic side is the side that we want to activate there. And we can do that with relaxation exercises deep breathing exercises, things like that. Also, we can say, hey guys, folks, uh, I just wanna say that I'm feeling kind of anxious in this conversation right now. I may be the only one, but I may not be. And usually you're not. Usually if one person's feeling it, other people are too. So that's a move that I really encourage my clients to start to make is these, I call them meta moves, where you go meta, you interrupt the flow, and you take everybody's attention outside of the content of the conversation. So I'm doing this with you right now, MK. We're in this this conversation and I just say, MK, let's hit pause for a second and look back in on how we're doing together in this conversation. Here's what I'm experiencing in myself. I'm interested in what you're experiencing. It seems on a certain level like a, a really simple, almost childish thing to do and yet this kind of a move, this kind of meta move where you just stop the flow for a second, you hit pause and you reflect, I have found to be one of the most transformative moves you can make with groups. And as teams start to be able to do this with each other, you, you see conversations really start to shift and it's not complicated, but it does take some, some discipline and practice together to do
1: it. Right. So one of the examples that um, that came to mind as you were explaining uh, your version of this was I, I do a lot of public speaking uh, and prior to going on stage, there's a couple of things that I like to do in order to bring down my level of discomfort with the idea of getting up in front of a room full of people and talking. One of the things is I like to see the venue without uh, you know the entire audience there prior to the yeah. event. Uh, and then the other thing is like sort of getting a hold of that mental um, inner voice. Uh, that can, and if you're not in check with it, speed things up when you talk, sort of just bring down this level of calmness, breathing exercises, all kinds of things and little uh, tricks that I've learned over the years to help me with getting into those events, bringing down my level of angst and anxiety, and then being able to present and deliver in a way that I feel comfortable with. So I I do liken that to, and I want to go back to this topic of the sort of the difficult conversations that leaders are required to have. Um, it, it, and I found them to be some of the most challenging things that you can engage in just because folks don't want to be in, those, in that level of discomfort, uh, leaders. I, I don't know a leader that actually likes those, uh, uncomfortable conversations, uh, and your ability to deliver them and to engage in them and to create that transparent and open setting that allows folks to have the kind of conversations you need for the purposes of growth can be challenging. Maybe if we can dig into that a little bit um, uh, and talk a little bit about how you can prepare yourself for these difficult, I call, you know, like you call them the title of your book, this, this is the contact part, I think, of leadership. And and this is an area that I think my audience can benefit from hearing from
2: you. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. Very few leaders enjoy those conversations. And when they, when a leader does, I'm a little concerned.
1: So, um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you know, parent if you if you're conf- if you're conflict oriented and you love having those conversations, then yeah you're probably there's probably some other issues that you probably need to be dealing with exactly as a leader, uh, other yeah. than that, but yeah, no by all means yeah, yeah, so um along the lines
2: of uh shifting contexts, what I really like to do and I find really helpful um when I'm approaching a conversation or or coaching a leader that is approaching a, a potentially difficult conversation is to uh, have them connect with why it is they're having the conversation in the first place. In other words, to remember what is the purpose, what is the bigger picture within which this particular conversation is just a, a part. So for instance, if I'm having a conversation, a potentially difficult conversation with a, uh, somebody who works for me, and then maybe it's a feedback conversation. Everybody's favorite. Uh, One of the things that I'll do with myself first is I'll remember I'm actually doing this out of service. This is a contribution to this person, not because I am the omniscient one that knows exactly what they should or shouldn't be doing, just because I happen to be an observer and I'm in a role that allows me to observe them in a certain way and give them what I observe as feedback. And if, I, if I'm approaching it, in other words, my internal story, if my internal story is, oh boy, I really don't wanna do this, this is so awkward and uncomfortable, I'm afraid of this and that and how they may react, what if they cry, what if they storm out? Of course, all those things can happen. But if I have worked with myself, like what you described you do with yourself before uh, an important speech, then I'm going to be in much better shape because I'm going to be approaching it from the perspective that, hey, I really can um, be a contribution to this person's life. Yeah, it might be uncomfortable, but if I'm remembering that, then the things I say and the way I say things will more likely come across in that spirit of contribution rather Mm -hmm. than I'm tearing them down and I'm ruining their day and it's going to be a shit show.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, we have an expression uh, here at Google, you know, feedback is a gift and, and that you should take it as such uh, an opportunity to grow and learn. Um, you, you touched on something that I that I think is super interesting. I'm wondering what your thoughts are around like sort of scripting, scripting, maybe not the right term, but mapping out the conversation? Is that do you think that's helpful? Yeah, for sometimes folks? it can be. Yeah. Um,
2: it can be as long as you approach it as a, a work in progress and not as how the conversation will actually happen. It's an idea, it's like right. a map, yeah. but you don't yeah. really know the territory. It's a it's a predictive, hopeful map perhaps. And if I remember that, yeah. then I stay flexible and present and not locked into my script.
1: So um, you're a um, uh, former CEO. I assume some of the experiences that you had leading uh, your own personal experiences are, are, are part of probably the things that you've poured into the writing of a book. Well, what was generally your experience like leading um, uh, in practical terms? Like, what, what did you take away uh, from those experiences? Just a couple of high level things maybe that are that's that have stuck with you over the years.
2: Yeah, well, I was um, I was thrust into this position when I was pretty young, so I made virtually every mistake and then some that one can make as a leader. Uh, One of the the big things that I learned that really fed right into my next career and to this book is I would uh, have monthly staff meetings with my, we had six campuses around the Bay Area. Uh, uh, It was a secondary school system, private school system, and each campus in in a different community. And I'd get all the campus directors together and for a day-long leadership meeting. And some of those times some of those conversations went really beautifully well, and we would leave that that day feeling energized and clear and uh, connected. other times it was as if why did we why did we just spend the last eight hours doing together and It took me a while to realize that it had something to do with me, in other words, I was looking everywhere else i was thinking i was analyzing all of my directors I was thinking about right. the You know, the environment, the agenda, this and that. And then it started dawning on me, wait a minute, maybe there's something that I'm doing or not doing that has something to do with how well these conversations go. And that kind of launched me after I left the school, that launched me in my career to becoming a mediator and facilitator and then a coach and consultant. So it was really the lesson that I'm where the action is. I don't mean in a narcissistic way, but in a kind of a very practical way that I really have very little control over all of these other smart, creative, committed people, many of whom know much more about their area than I did. That was certainly true of my experience as a CEO. I was the least informed about what they were doing, but um, that's okay. It's okay for the leader to be uh, not the expert in all these areas. It's probably preferable as long as the leader recognizes that um, they are, a a big factor in what happens with their people and their organization. And if they're having recurring problems and challenges, then it's an opportunity to look inside yourself. And I know Google has a program that's called uh, Search Inside Yourself, actually. But um, that's where the action is. Yeah, we influence people all over the place, but if we're not doing it from a place of uh, as much self-awareness as we can muster at the time, and we're all, of course, you know, mostly blind, but uh, even given that, if we recognize it, then we'll be a little less arrogant, a little less formulaic, and maybe a little more open to, why does this person think this way? Or wh- what might have that person behave that way in this meeting, uh, as opposed to just uh, instantly jumping into a story about how screwed up this person is or how selfish or how blind they are. If I first focus that lens on myself, I think I'm gonna do a lot better.
1: So I I just recently um, launched a formal uh, coaching business, but I've informally been coaching others for decades. And I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think it, it is that brings those of us who intend to coach, what is it that brings us to that place where we believe we can help others achieve that next level of potential development and success? Like, what was it for you that guided you to the point where you said, hey, you know what, I, th- I think I want to start helping people uh, in this regard. And then you go about doing well. It. I'm
2: going to I'm going to venture a guess that um, the the motivation for me is similar to you but here's my experience i never set out to be a coach i never intend i didn't even think about it i found myself while i was still ceo being asked by other leaders to come and work with their groups and just from conversations we would have it it led to that and i found oh wow that's kind of interesting i had no idea that i had anything to offer here but people seemed to be responding And then I would be asked, well, can you spend a little bit of time here? I'm not sure that I really, you know, understand what I'm trying to do here. And I just found myself like you described yourself. You've been doing coaching for decades. I found myself coaching. As well, and realizing a that that they seem to think I have something to offer, even if I didn't at first, and then b right. Boy, it's really satisfying uh, not having to have the answers and tell people what to do, but help them work with themselves and find the answers that really work for them. And that's how I see coaching. And um, so, you know, I found myself doing it and I realized it's really satisfying. I seem to do okay at it. So that, then I, you know, found myself, that's the work I'm doing. And it sounds kind of similar, I'm guessing, yeah. for you.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I think that, um you certainly highlighted um a piece for me that is absolutely the same which is i spend probably an inordinate amount of time before launching this particular endeavor just being you know people reach out to me they're like hey i want to, i want to understand what you've been doing to be uh successful in the lanes that you've been successful in have a conversation with me and i and i i almost always say yes to those like i'll i will spend 15 minutes 20 minutes on the hook with someone Giving a little bit about my background, and then ultimately offering some kind of advice as to how they might take some steps, uh, substantive steps in their own professional lives to develop themselves and move forward. Uh, and it struck me that you know I I didn't intend to be uh, a coach, but I think there's a natural gravitation, especially when at least on the outward appearance, people see that you've been you know somewhat successful in some particular area. People tend to want to gravitate towards you and basically say, "How did you do?" or "How did you accomplish what you were able to accomplish?" And so that absolutely resonates. Um, And you actually touched on another thing that I think is an interesting component of it. I absolutely feel that there's a little bit of the pressure uh, has been removed. Like you touched on something that resonates with me from my background, which is I've I've made a lot of mistakes in leadership. I like to hope that I've learned from those mistakes. And so when I'm in a position to give someone advice, you know, those my the the sticky part of those come back to me and I'm able to relay those stories and with the level of confidence like, hey, that particular way, given the circumstances that you just described, tends not to work. And let me tell you why. Uh, there's there's something to be said about that kind of um, experience that you're able to offer to others, so that they can hopefully avoid uh, making similar mistakes. So all of those things absolutely resonate. But I just coaching is a super interesting piece to me. It gets around to the point of, I think, leadership can be taught. I'll be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that. That's an oversimplification of something that I absolutely believe at my core. But um, I I always ask guests around what their thoughts are on the subject of, you know, are leaders born or made? So let's go down that track uh, in conversation. Like, Obviously, you're a coach. I assume you think some aspects of this can be taught, but where do you lay on the the born or made? um, Yeah, I'm
2: absolutely very squarely on the made side. I, I do recognize that some people just seem to come out of the chute with a certain capacity for showing up as leaders and for being related to as leaders. and uh, But that's not the majority of people. The majority of people right. who find themselves leading uh, had to work at it and cultivate that. And so it is learnable. And I see it's, it's um, not just the actions or the things you say or the way you uh, you, you show up kind of um, intellectually, but also the way you show up bodily. And this is where my Aikido my, my practice really has played a big role in, in, start, in kind of recognizing how is somebody walk into a room? What is, what's the feeling I have when I watch them sit down at the table or engage with other people? And that, that also can be learned. We can learn to cultivate our presence just like we can learn to cultivate any other type of skill, just a different kind of practice.
1: Talk a little bit more about the presence thing, because I, you know, coming from um, my military background, I've always thought that things like presence and bearing uh, play a huge role on how people perceive you and how they, how they sort of take you in. Uh, I have an expression that I tell people, know who you are before you enter the room. Uh, Which is this idea that when you step into a room, depending on how you carry yourself or what people's um, thoughts are about who you are, things that sometimes are valid. Other times are things that are just brought upon by impressions that you make on people. Uh, And I'm I'm really interested in this idea of how you've tied um, your experience in Aikido to uh, the subject of leadership. I always think that, you know, Eastern philosophy um, uh, uh, is an interesting tie in to. Uh, things like the practice of leadership and the discipline of leadership. So talk a little bit more about the presence and uh, maybe I call it bearing, but presence is an absolutely uh, great word for it.
2: Yeah, well, I like what you said about know yourself before you walk in the room. So I'm going to riff on that for a second. The um, one way of thinking about that is we in Aikido, we really um, talk a lot about and work a lot on cultivating our center. And what that means is recognizing that we have a center of gravity, just, you know, generally it's a few fingers below the belly button and that that is a, a place in the body where all the major uh, most powerful muscles come together. Some, sometimes referred to as the core and it's an organizing place. When all of our movements are organized from and around our center, that's when we have power physically. When we try and just push or pull or move something with our arms or shoulders, that's the least power we have. If you watch good you know, boxers or uh, martial artists or football players or anybody, any elite athletes, you see that their, their movements are very coordinated and they're never just using a body part. Tennis players, they have to engage their core, which is connected to their feet, connected to the ground. So they're unified. That we, we our movements are harmonious, are are my hands are working with my feet. Everything is organized around my center, and that's when I, when I'm unified is when I'm at my most powerful. So your your admonition to know who you know yourself before you walk in the room, I listen to that as a kind of a version of what I'm talking about. If you right. are really clear on on what's important to you in this moment what it is you want to accomplish in this conversation, in this room that you're about to walk into, and you've worked with yourself, you've worked on yourself to be clear about that, then you're gonna be more relaxed. You're gonna be more grounded. Your movement is also likely gonna be more fluid. And those are all, your breath is gonna be easier. Those are all aspects of physical presence or bearing how we move, how we walk, how we stand, sit, how we make eye contact, all of that has to do with presence. And it has a lot to do with uh, not just our physical organization, but also our mental and emotional organization. If we're unified, if we really know what we're about here, we're gonna be a lot, we're gonna have access to our power and people are gonna respond to it. Not like power, like forceful or aggressive, in fact, a different kind of power, a quieter power that it that that people don't have to get defensive around to protect themselves from.
1: Right. So I, I've been threatening uh, myself for years that I'm going to take up Aikido. I might have to pick up a different thread with you about that because I'm very have always been interested in uh, the Eastern uh, martial arts. But Aikido particularly is a uh, super interesting one for me. So. Um, it, it, tell folks what they're going to get out of, um, out of your book. What prompted you to, to, to write it? And what are, you, what are the takeaways that you, uh, that you hope folks have uh, in terms of uh, diving in and reading it?
2: Well, I, I really um, wanted to write the book to bring together in one place the various threads that constitute my approach to coaching and, and working with leaders and uh, collaboration. Uh, and those threads, the key threads are one that we use, are we collaborate with our words. We lead with our words, but we don't realize that our words are actions. When we speak, we're not just conveying meaning or describing things. We're actually acting in the world. And there are very specific linguistic actions that I'm talking about when I say our words are actions. So I introduce that and I go into detail about what those five linguistic actions are, uh, I also talk about the role of our attention, that leaders and people, when we're collaborating, um, we can use our attention in a lot of different ways, but not all of those ways are always so helpful. We can learn how to use our attention, how to harness our attention so that it really can help us perform better, both as individuals, but also as members of a team or a collaborative uh, group. And then there's the body. And we talked about that, that there's the nervous system. How do we work with the nervous system? How do I cultivate a flexible, resilient nervous system so I can actually handle the kinds of conflict and pressures that come up in in leadership all the time? And how can I do it and stay open and engaged? So I wanted to introduce and and weave together those three elements. And I hope that people will, by reading the book, they'll recognize that um, even if you're working with a real jerk and the people around you seem like they're bad collaborators, there's still a lot you can do because it's not all about them. It has as much or more to do with you and how you're making sense of things, how you're using yourself, your words, your body, your attention, than just who else is in the room doing whatever they're doing. So I feel it's a real, um hopeful and pragmatic lesson, even though I draw on a lot of uh, different theories that may may seem a little bit uh, less than pragmatic taken alone. So I'm hoping that uh, I've painted a picture for readers that can really empower them to transform their leadership and collaborative performance.
1: I I, I can tell you that um, uh, some of the theories that you've espoused just in this short conversation certainly resonate with me as a longtime leadership practitioner. And I can't wait to dive in on the book where uh, uh, by the time that folks hear this, the book will uh, likely already be available. Where can people find it?
2: I uh, it's now available just as of a few days ago on uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any online booksellers, and you can order the book. If your local bookseller doesn't have it, you can order it at any local bookseller and you'll get it with should get it within a few days. Then. Awesome.
1: Full Contact Performance, The Internal Art of Organizational Collaboration uh, by Grayson and James. Uh, excited about that, and I'm excited about this conversation here. And I just had, I can't wait for people to hear it. So thanks for your hey, time.
2: MK, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Outstanding. So folks, that's, uh, that's it for this episode of the Leadership Student Podcast. We'll see you next time. Be sure to like, download, share, and uh, pass this on to others. Thanks for joining us.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Student Podcast with M.K. Palmore, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations, and our audience, visit ITSBmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.